You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the latest is that South Yorkshire is facing the toughest COVID rules from Saturday. The mayor for the Sheffield City region has said Labour's day, Mayor Dan, Labour Mayor Dan Jarvis said the move to Tier 3 followed extensive discussions with ministers. And it all comes, of course, after the row over Greater Manchester, which is to move into Tier 3 from Friday against the wishes of local leaders. Yep, it was all about the money, wasn't it? The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, saying the £60 million offer to help Greater Manchester is still on the table after talks broke down. Uh, the local authorities there were looking for 65. And earlier on, we spoke to the Business Minister, Nadim Zahawi, uh, and he talked about the economic support made available to Manchester. I hope that we can agree with Greater Manchester that we can provide the £60 million that's on offer to them. The allocation of funding is based on if firms are asked to close, then two-thirds of wages for those people who are asked to stay at home will be paid by the government. Uh, business can also claim up to £3,000 if they are asked to close as well per month. Mm. So it's a big package. And Labour Mayor, of course, of Manchester, Andy Burnham, insists the offer is too low, with local leaders wanting at least £65 million. Is this a game of poker? Are they playing poker with places and people's lives through a pandemic? Is that what this is about? Are they piling pressure on people to accept the lowest figure that they can get away with? Is that what this is about? Is that how they're running this country? So joining us now is Emma Hardy. She's the Labour MP for Kingston-upon-Hull and Hessel up in East Yorkshire. Uh, Emma, so we've got a deal then with South Yorkshire. Sounds then like the government is perhaps learning from its mistakes in Manchester. Well, I can only hope so. But I mean, the situation in Manchester is getting quite desperate now. I mean, there's been no sort of written offer of the £60 million that the government have sort of talked about, and yet not confirmed in writing. And so that still is a complete sort of shambles as to what's going on there. And, and I think it's worth pointing out the difference between Manchester and obviously South Yorkshire is Manchester's already been in lockdown restrictions for the past three months. I mean, they're already 
suffering and they're already sort of paying the price of those lockdown restrictions. You know, I'm pleased there has been a deal obviously made for South Yorkshire, but, you know, we can't go on with this sort of constant sort of fight between um, different regions. And and this is partly why Labour are obviously calling on the vote today to say, right, universally, whenever there's a Tier 3 lockdown, this is the amount of support an area can get. So we offer that stability and that sort of reassurance and transparency to everybody. Yeah, but of course Andy Burnham isn't operating, I guess, in that uh, environment. So in your view, should he have taken the deal? I mean, he could have got £60 million. Now it looks like he'll get rather less than that. I think Andy's done a fantastic job standing up for the community that he represents and fighting for them. I mean, that's you know, what he was elected to do. He was elected to stand up for people in Greater Manchester, and, and that's the fight that he's making. I mean, pointing out the impact this has on working people, the impact on you know pub uh, landlords, the impact on taxi drivers he's spoken about. I mean, this is impacting everyone across the entire area. And, of course, he's absolutely right to go down there fighting to government and try and get as much as he possibly can get. I mean, as, as we heard in the clip just earlier, this isn't a game. You know, this isn't about losing face. This isn't about sort of, you know, the government's pride being dented. This is about supporting people in the areas where they need it the most. But the problem and is, Emma, he right didn't to... get as much as he possibly could get. He ended up settling for less. Well, we don't know exactly how it's all going to play out yet. I mean, I was sort of catching up on this this morning and, and who knows where we'll be by the end of the day at the speed that it's moving at. But what he's been doing, though, is pointing out to the government that it's different in Manchester. They have been in lockdown for longer. I mean, I'm seeing, I mean, the whole Western Heather, where I represent, is not in any lockdown. We're in Tier 1. But you can already see people's nervousness, people's sort of apprehension. You know, they're not going out and spending money in the same way. Businesses are starting to close. I've got 14% youth unemployment. It's hurting. It's hurting my community. And this is an area that's in Tier 1. So I can't imagine how bad it must be in some areas of Manchester when they've been under this for three months. So I think good on you, Andy, for standing up for you know, but, Greater Manchester. But Emma, I mean, you, you talk about an area that's in Tier 1 at the moment. There are many around the country. As you say, it's already hurting. It'd be much worse if they went into Tier 2 or Tier 3. So isn't it right, as in fact the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jonathan Van Tam, ha- has backed now the government's regional strategy? You don't. Uh, it's not appropriate for certain communities where you are, perhaps, or in Cornwall or in East Anglia. There's no actual backing for a full lockdown. It feels, though, that we're just dragging out the pain. I mean, that's the sense that I'm getting from talking to people in the area. Is everyone sort of where I am is expecting sort of further lockdown restrictions to come. So they're not sort of acting as normal, if you'd like, or even whatever the new normal is. They're already almost sort of having this self-imposed lockdown. I think the IMF put something out this morning about this, saying that this apprehension is already costing billions to the economy. And I think Labour's plan for a circuit breaker, where you have the short, sharp, shock, lock everything down for two to three weeks, with, of course, the financial support that people need to reset the virus, give a bit more time to sort out test, track and trace, and it sort of helps us sort of get the virus a bit more under control, makes more sense. Because while people are expecting lockdown to come at any moment, they're not sort of acting as normal. And, and it, I can't emphasize enough, this is hurting my city. You know, walk around the town centre, look at the shops that are closing, look how many people are out there, talk to the landlords, the taxi drivers, people working in the service economy. They're seeing their businesses disappear that they've had for years. I mean, this is causing real pain and hardship. And, and, and I think the government really needs to acknowledge this. And one of the things I've been pushing for is saying, you know, we need support right around the country. It's all very well saying it's only for businesses that have closed, but what about businesses involved in the supply chain? 
What about businesses that are suffering under the 10 p.m. curfew? I mean, you can't underestimate the pain this is causing people in the north. So talk me through a local lockdown then, as is Labour's policy. What happens if we get to the end of those two or three weeks and the numbers don't start coming down? Do we continue or do we just call it quits at that point? Well, if we now, you know, I could only sort of say what I've read in the stage advice because I'll, you know, I'm not a scientist. But that's the recommendation that they're giving. And I think they're the experts in this and, and they're the ones who should know, you know, how it will work or not work. And actually, Van Tam had said that he thought this regional approach wasn't that effective, where if we have this sort of national two to three week lockdown, it gives us some chance to reset the clock a little and buy time. And I think this is what we need. We know this virus is going to be around a long time. We're going to be living with it for a very long time. The only way that we can continue any semblance of normality is effective test, track and trace. We need that to work desperately. And in my shadow brief as university, shadow universities minister, we know how desperately we need test, track and trace working (coughs) for university students to get back to normal. This gives us a little bit of time. And with Wales going into lockdown on Friday, of course, it'd be, I'll be watching those figures and numbers very, very closely to see the impact that it has. But of course, nothing is a silver bullet. And, you know, I'm not going to stand here and say this is going to solve all problems because it won't. It has to be done with various other measures as well. But what we need, though, is some kind of strategy. And what my sense is from talking to people out in the community is they've lost faith in the government, they've lost trust in the government, and then if people start to do their own thing anyway, then that's when we really are in trouble. Emma, let me turn briefly, though, to the other massive issue, of course, which is uh, well, prospectively causing all sorts of issues for the UK economy, and that's Brexit. Now, this morning, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, emphasised the importance of the UK's sovereignty. That's a key demand uh, from Britain to return to trade talks. Speaking in the European Parliament in Brussels, Barnier said despite Boris Johnson's suspension of talks last week, a deal is within reach. He said the agreement must reflect a balanced compromise between the two sides. Because time is of the essence and time is running out. We made uh, clear that we are ready to engage intensely to find solutions. There is no time to lose. Our UK friends say they want to maintain the highest standards. If that's the case, why don't they commit to them? We don't need words, we need guarantees. An agreement is within reach. Deal or no deal, the withdrawal agreement must be respected. May I remind you that the European Union's attitude in this negotiation has in no way shifted, and it will not shift. It's their free and sovereign choice, and we will always respect them, whatever choice they make, but their sovereign answer will determine their level of access to our internal market. This is just common sense. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Cake and eat it too. That was the EU Council President Charles Michel, the EU Commission, European Commission Vice President Marcus Lefkovic, and the Chief Brexit Negotiator Michel Barnier. Now, Emma Hardy, are you more personally optimistic now about a deal actually being done? Well, I hope a deal will actually be done because as I was just talking about the pain that's already out there and no deal would cause even greater pain. I was talking to a local haulage company um, in my constituency who was 
who are just at the end of their tether with what's going on and the lack of clarity and they don't know if they're going to be able to continue to operate in the EU. They haven't had the permits sorted out that they need to be able to drive their lorries abroad. I mean, this is real chaos. And I think sometimes all this talk of a deal or, or no deal is feel sometimes removed from people's everyday experience. And sort of listening to that company telling me, you know, I've, they've got 25 drivers who drive over in the EU. They've only got five permits. That's 20 jobs that could be going in an area, as I've already mentioned, which has already been really hit by coronavirus. That, yeah. that hits home. And I think so... <laughs> You know, I, I really, really do hope that the government managed to get some kind of deal because I don't even want to think about what would happen if they don't. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, as if the government didn't have enough negotiating to do, we're also now in a clash between the government and the London Mayor Sadiq Khan about the future of transport for London. So sources telling us that Downing Street is now threatening to take control of TfL if Khan doesn't accept a package of measures in return for more rescue funding. This is all because of the tube usage falling off a cliff during the pandemic, as you might expect, and the huge shortfall as a result of that. So now the government is talking about high affairs on tubes and buses, central London congestion zone getting extended, and an increase in council tax. So a triple whammy, as Khan has referred to it, as he calls it. Uh, he says he won't sign up for the deal, and he says that the government should be supporting Londoners through the time rather than making what he calls draconian proposals that will choke off our economic recovery. So another battle here, not looking good for Londoners if this comes through. Yes, and the word draconian was one that Andy Burnham used as well. I think there's a theme as far as the attitude of certain regional mayors to the government is concerned. Meanwhile, the spending review. Well, the Chancellor's cut down what's planned from three years to one because of, quotes unprecedented uncertainty. So the review will now end in late November and set the budgets of government departments for the fiscal year 2021 to 2022 only. It's a setback for the Prime Minister's attempt to map out his priorities for a post-pandemic world, namely the billions he's pledged in infrastructure investment projects as he continues his agenda to level up the country. But the pandemic's blown a hole in public finances. The budget deficit climbed to a record £208.5 billion in the first six months of the fiscal year. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? All of those big promises we saw for the manifesto that so many people got behind now not being able to be delivered. He's got to find a way to do it. And then we've got a story about Brexit, about half of British companies less prepared compared to last year because of the impact of the pandemic. This is a survey from the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. They spoke to about 500 supply chain managers in the country. So 46% of businesses say they're in a worse position because of the virus, surprise, surprise, uh, which has hit their financial reserves, their stockpiles. And 16% say stocks will run low this winter because of the impact of COVID-19. And then we have the other issue that we don't have a Brexit deal yet. So we're not exactly sure what companies should be preparing for. So lots to think about if you're in the import-export business at the moment. And even more if you're in Downing Street, I imagine. It's been a pretty challenging week for the Prime Minister. How has he fared? Well, joining us to give us her view is the Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, thanks for being with us again. Now, it was a very public and 
rather theatrical standoff between Andy Burnham and Boris Johnson. A uh, bit of a crass question, I suppose, but who won? Well, I have to say, if you want to grade them on the comms game, on, on who won uh, the communications side of things, you'd have to say Andy Burnham did because he stood up for his constituents, for uh, the Northerners, and he said, look, if you're going to put us in this uh, more stringent lockdown, then at least give us the same compensation, the same full furlough measures we had during the last lockdown. And the government really struggled to explain why it's killed back its support um, while while putting Manchester, you know, the largest, um, you know, largest one of the largest cities in, in the UK, under such uh, lockdown restrictions. So now there's a, a, a sort of blame game going on. Um, the government is saying that, uh, that every day that Burnham delayed giving his support uh, was another day in which infection rates rose, and that's putting pressure on hospitals. But the other way that we can uh, look at this and, and ultimately determine who got the better is to say, you know, is the government right on uh, the merits of its own case, which is that these lockdowns are necessary to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed, and they've cited very high levels of, uh, of occupancy in ICU beds. Um, but if you look back at ICU occupancy in recent years, and um, you know, the spectators done this recently, it's always pretty cool. It's always pretty high. So there really is a, a question of why the government is insisting on these very stringent regional lockdowns and whether that's ultimately going to help them avoid what they really don't want to do, and that's a national lockdown. And, Therese, a big theme here is devolution and, I suppose, the limits of devolution. And these metro mayors are a relatively new concept. We're still working out just what they can and can't do within the UK political landscape. It seems like we've hit a a stopping point here, some sort of limit for the powers of people like Andy Burnham. Well, the government just hasn't been very clear on how it wants local authorities and and um, and people like Burnham, uh, what sort of role it wants them to serve. It's very clear that, that local authorities are, are necessary to implement any lockdown restrictions. Without Andy Burnham's support, it's going to be hard for the government um, to impose these new measures and, and enforce them. I mean, it, it legally can impose them, but the question is whether compliance is going to be as high if local authorities are saying they're not necessary, or that the um, or, or that local uh, businesses and em- employees are not getting the support they need. So the government clearly needs the local authorities, and yet, as you say, it's uh, very reluctant to give away uh, any power. And even Dominic Cummings' um, support for decentralizing has been more about moving government um, institutions and offices to the regions rather than strengthening the power of the regions. And I think we're going to see more and more debate around this because from on, across so many different levels, uh, helping combat the virus really requires local authorities. It requires local GP offices, hospitals. And so it's going to be very hard to run this from Whitehall uh, and from Westminster. And that's quite apart from just the optics of it, because People in Manchester, in Leeds, in uh, in Birmingham, in Liverpool, they they want to see uh, you know their local MPs and uh, local government offices on board. And when those authorities are pushing back against Westminster, it creates a lot of friction, and it just complicates uh, all these efforts to keep the virus under control. 
And I mean, in in all this, of course, the other major issue for Boris Johnson at the moment, people trying to read how he's playing it, obviously, is what's happening with Brexit. And we had some interesting developments this this morning, uh, Therese, in terms of Bloomberg getting a briefing, I think, that the EU somehow sees it as a possible win by letting Boris Johnson also appear to win. So it's a way of, I suppose, enabling him to declare victory and move on, and that that's the EU plan. Is that likely to work? Yeah, well, I think we're seeing a repeat almost of what we had last year, where a breakthrough happened at the 11th hour. Remember, Boris Johnson went on that walk with the Irish T-shirt Leo Varadka, and they hammered out a deal. Now, the deal actually required Johnson to step back quite significantly uh, on many of the uh, the the issues that you know, particularly putting a you know effectively effectively a customs border down the Irish Sea. However, it was really portrayed as a win for uh, for Boris Johnson, and the EU also compromised. I think that's what uh, Michel Barnier, uh, the the you know, chief EU negotiator, is is thinking needs to happen now. So yes, the EU is going to have to move. Yes, there are substantive issues separating the two sides, but for a compromise to be handed out, Boris Johnson needs to be able to go to his back ventures to go to Brexiters and say, look, I got something and what I got upholds the reason that we um, have fought this long, hard battle for Brexit. It is, uh, you know, defends uh, the interests of, of British sovereignty. It helps us regain control of our border and our monies and our laws and all of that. So uh, you know, the EU has not been terribly bothered by the theatrics of recent days. It knows that uh, the, it, it pushes the real negotiations uh, more toward November, which isn't very comfortable from a ratification standpoint, but that the key is finding a way for Johnson to be able to sell a compromise to Brexiters at home. It's not by any means uh, a sure thing that they will do that. But, uh, you know, I think the Bloomberg News story and other reports suggest that uh, that's the kind of way that they envisage getting through this impasse. And then another blow to Boris Johnson is the uh, the shortening of the spending review, uh, the impact then on the uh, levelling up agenda. Just how big a blow is that in terms of all of the other things that Boris Johnson was hoping to get done before this virus came along? Well, look, it's all connected, right? So, you know, the... the, the the harder the news is on the coronavirus front, the more Boris Johnson needs a win on the Brexit front. The harder it is to get a win on the Brexit front, the more he really needs to change the subject and be able to talk about his uh, agenda, the, the vision that got him elected in December, which is leveling up the British economy. Now we've seen that this three-year spending review is being shortened. Um, of course, Big spending items such as the NHS and schools and infrastructure, uh, like HS2, are being protected. But this deprives Johnson of the ability to stand up and say, uh, let's cast our eyes on, on the horizon, which is something he really likes to do, to look past uh, the current problems. And he can't do that without being able to put some numbers on what the government plans to do. And Therese, finally, I mean, something I know that you're taking great interest in, which I suppose is part of the levelling up agenda or would hope to be, which is uh, the idea that you can have a national tutoring programme to make up for the education (laughs) deficit for underprivileged kids. Uh, What are you finding on that? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more attention given to this as that as it's rolled out. Well, look, it, you know, it's one of the most innovative policies um, in education anywhere. The UK is the first government that I know of that's that's trying it, which is rolling out on a very large scale tutors 
to help underprivileged children close the gap that was opened up when schools uh, <clears throat> when schools were locked down. The success depends on how well it's done. Is the quality of tutoring um, good enough to really make a difference? It depends on the scale of it and how much funding for how long the government is going to give. And I think on that score, um, you know, the jury is really out. It's the right idea, whether it's being implemented in the right way, we're going to have to see. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.